Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Capital Allocators or their firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Capital Allocators or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities discussed on this podcast. My guest on today's show is Kim Sargent, the Chief Investment Officer of the Packard Foundation, where she oversees $10 billion. Kim is a well-respected member of the Yale diaspora, having started her career under David Swenson. 
Our conversation covers Kim's time at Yale, some lessons learned from David, and her application of those lessons and a lot more at Packard over 15 years. Kim shares thoughts on a range of asset classes and closes by explaining why her role is the best job in the world. Before we get going, I am thrilled to share that Capital Allocators recently became the number one investment podcast for listeners to find love. Wait, what? Yes, you heard me correctly. It turns out that after her appearance on the show, Christy Hamilton received a direct message from listener Luke Townsend, who had a crush on her from afar. One message led to another, one date led to another, and one thing led to another, and three years later, the couple got engaged. How's that for serendipity on the show? Now, I can vouch for the importance of common interests in successful marriages, so for those of you who are single, you have my blessing to use the show as an opener to reach out to your crush, start a conversation, and see where that serendipity takes you. Whether as common ground on a first date or mixing it up as you get to know each other, I can't imagine a better way to test the intellectual capacity of a potential partner than to exchange your shared lessons from listening to dozens of episodes of Capital Allocators. And while you're at it, I highly recommend you ask each other the closing questions to make sure you've covered your bases. Thanks so much for finding new ways to spread the word about Capital Allocators. And to Christy and Luke, Mazel tov, and thank you for sharing the love about Capital Allocators. Please enjoy my conversation with Kim Sargent. Kim, great to be here with you. Thanks for having me, Ted. Why don't you take me all the way back to your very first job? I was a history major, and I didn't totally know what I wanted to do, but I had this vision that I wanted to become a judge, which my friends are going to laugh because I'm pretty judgmental. So maybe that would have been a good (laughs) career for me. And I enrolled in law school like many coming out of undergrad. And I took a year off and worked in New York at a law firm. So I was a paralegal. was my first job. I pretty quickly decided that that work wasn't for me and made a pivot to finance. How'd you make the pivot? It was lucky. I was working with a trust and estates lawyer. And part of what he was doing with families was financial planning. I think I had taken one econ class, pass, fail during undergrad. Finance was not on my radar at all. But I thought, this is kind of interesting. I'd really like to check this out. By the grace of people doing me favors, someone ended up introducing me to David Swenson and he hired me and he took a chance on me and here I am. So who was in the office with you back then? It was David and Dean. Seth Alexander was there, Rob Wallace, Randy Kim, Alan Foreman, Tim Sullivan, lots of names that a lot of people know. Legendary crew. How'd you spend your time there? I was an analyst. So I was there for three years doing various parts of the analyst job. I focused a little bit of my time on foreign equities, so got that international exposure. But I was also Dave's research assistant for his second book. The first book was The Yale Model is Great, and the second book was Don't Try It at Home. (laughs) (laughs) So he had me chasing down all different kinds of data. I would go to the Yale library, and he wanted me to measure the square footage on the page of advertising in different market environments to see whether it was pro-cyclical or counter-cyclical. Just interesting projects for him and his book. What do you think were your biggest takeaways from the experience working there those three years? 
Yeah. So there are a lot. There are some that are very specific to David and then others that are more about Yale and the model there. David really taught me that investing is a business about people and relationships. I know there's a quantitative aspect to it and (laughs) you do a lot of modeling, but you can have the best models in the world. And if you're not partnered with the most talented investors on earth, you're leaving a lot on the table. And so he really viewed his partners from a human perspective. He really tried to develop and maintain great long-term relationships with them. I saw him really tell them what he thought. If he had concerns, he would voice them. I think he did this out of respect for them. I've always tried to mimic that. Just if ever I have to part ways with a partner, I don't want the reasons to be a surprise. They may or may not agree with me, but it's probably better for them to have information about how peas are thinking and what their concerns are over time. And hopefully that's helpful to them. The other was how much he spent time mentoring and training young people. I don't know that a lot of people know that about him, but he really just tried to give back, pay it forward. That's something that I've always tried to do as well. The third thing I'd point to is just he's a very values-driven person. I think working for a mission-driven organization was very important to him, either because he surrounded himself with these people or he had an influence on these people. A lot of the people that he's mentored and trained over time have gone on to work for mission-driven organizations. So that is the legacy from my time with him. And then finally, I would just say his patience and contrarianism as an investor. He was really able to tune out the noise, take a long-term perspective on things, develop an independent point of view. He was a religious rebalancer. (laughs) He wanted to go against the grain and buy what others were selling and sell what others were buying. How about some aspects of what became known as the Yale model? To me, the Yale model was really about maintaining this equity orientation in the portfolio. But then also diversifying into asset classes, which at the time were alternative (laughs) and were inefficient enough that if you really selected the best managers, they could outperform. And then the third piece of it was really focusing on talent and trying to find the best managers around the globe. This model really still holds true today, although I remember seeing some analysis that suggested that half of the value that Yale had added over time relative to peer endowments was from asset allocation and half was manager selection. And my guess is if you fast forward, there's going to be more of that from manager selection over time because so many people have just copied this asset allocation model. How did you decide to leave? Well, I'm a California girl, (laughs) born and raised in San Francisco, and I'd spent eight years on the East Coast, seven of them in New Haven, I loved working at Yale, but it was a lonely time for me. I remember on the first day working at the investments office, there was something really cool going on on the capital markets desk. I said, I'm going to learn this. This is so cool. And I really spent a lot of my time in the evenings. I would go to the library. I'd read the CFA books. On the weekends, I would go to coffee shops. I'd read investments books. I think I read Dave's Pioneering Portfolio Management and underlined and highlighted three times And I was all about learning in that moment, but the people I knew from undergrad had graduated and it was wonderful, but I was wanting to get back to California. And when you're young, you want to explore, you want to see what else is out there, experiment a little bit. So that was my thought for going back to business school. So given that you eventually went back to this path, where did that experimentation take you? 
So I decided between my two years of business school, I should do something completely different from what I'd ever done. And I took a job in operations at a big company, Home Depot, to see see what working at a big company was like. It was very eye-opening. What was eye-opening about it? Just how difficult it was to get things done in a large company. The politics around that, the number of people you had to get on board, it solidified my desire to work on small teams. What did you do when you came out of school? I had a little detour to McKinsey in San Francisco. I loved the people, didn't love the work, and all of that just made me convinced that I was destined for investing. I really missed it. What was the Packard Foundation like when you got there? There were five line items in the portfolio, a few index funds and a lot of HP stock. (laughs) (laughs) The foundation didn't have an investments team until the very end of 2007, early 2008 when I joined. So it was a startup investments team. Historically, the foundation had held Hewlett Packard stock, eventually post the compact merger, ended up gradually selling out of HP, but still had a large amount of it and diversifying into index funds while they tried to figure out how to hire an investments team and start an investments function. It was really a blank slate. There were two people on the investments team when I joined, John Mailing, the first CIO, and his assistant, Lena, and me. (laughs) So it was blank slate, start from scratch. Given the history you had understanding how Yale went about investing. How did you then apply that with John to this clean slate? Well, it was immediately clear that John and I shared an investment philosophy, and it was very much rooted in the philosophy at Yale. Long-term investing, concentrated, deep manager relationships, look for talent, try not to be too top-down, not trading around. So that was great from the start to have that investment philosophy. I definitely learned over time that managing a portfolio for a foundation is a very different cup of tea than for an endowment. What are the aspects that made it different? The first thing I would say is liquidity management for a foundation is a really different exercise. So if you think of university endowments, a lot of them, especially the prominent ones, have money coming in the door from alumni that either partially or nearly fully covers their payout to the university. So There's not a big net liability there. You can take a lot more illiquidity. With a foundation, you've got 5 to 6% coming out each year. There's no money coming in the door. So your portfolio needs to both cover that payout, but also the internal plumbing of your capital calls and everything like that. That may not sound like a big deal, but if you think about the math, if you start with a $100 million endowment and you lose 10%, and you're a university endowment, and let's just say for the sake of argument that you have no net outflows. And so the market's down 10%, you lose 10%. The next year you gain 10%, you're back at 99. (laughs) So with the foundation, you lose 10%, you spend five, you're at 85. Then you gain 10% and you spend five again, and you're in the 80s. You've lost 11, 12% of your endowment over the course of two years, and the market hasn't even moved that much. So you have this massive denominator effect that can occur in the foundation portfolio, which is why you see a lot of foundations holding 10, 15% less in private assets than a lot of university endowments. The liquidity management of it has been very different. The other thing I would say is different is sourcing, at least from Yale. 
when I was at Yale, people who were launching a fund came by. They wanted that anchor check from Yale. You didn't have to look too hard to find them. (laughs) They came to you at a smaller endowment on the outside. I had to learn how to figure out who was launching, how to figure out where the talent was. And so there was just a whole muscle around that that I think we had to build. As you developed that muscle, how did you go about sourcing the managers for the portfolio? It was a lot of word of mouth, a lot of asking investors I respected who else they liked, who should I talk to. If it's in the private markets, who's someone on a board that you think adds a ton of value? I learned to have quid pro quo relationship with peer LPs. Now, you can't do that with everyone because you got to keep some secrets, but learn to share ideas with people who are sharing ideas with me in a way that I don't think we did at Yale. As you build up a portfolio from where you started, how do you create the idea that to outperform or you need to be different from people? And yet, in order to have the sourcing, you need to be sharing information with other people. Well, that's another interesting thing about foundations is the goal is less to outperform other foundations. We have a lot of large foundations with whom we're working pretty closely on the grant-making side. Issues, climate, social justice, whatever it is. It's great for me if the Hewlett Foundation performs well. And that's just something nice about being in the foundation world. So I'm less interested in being different and outperforming and more interested in just adhering to my own investment principles. How did you evolve the portfolio from the five line items, a big stock position into something that resonates today? Yeah, well, it was a really interesting time to be doing that because the financial crisis hit pretty much right away. And a lot of really compelling investment managers that had been closed to new capital all of a sudden opened and we had a chance to build relationships with them. So it actually, the build out happened much more quickly than I think John and I were expecting it to. There was also a secondary market that opened on the private side. So we were able to jumpstart building the private portfolio that way. How did you triage the shopping list? The first thing we wanted to do was build out the hedge fund portfolio because the simple portfolio that we inherited was very equity oriented. And we knew the privates would take a long time. So step one was diversify through hedge funds. And then gradually we built out the private side of the portfolio with some great hires. When you focus on investing with great people, having great long-term partnerships, what are the characteristics of those people that fit into the managers you'd like to partner with for the long-term? I sometimes think of manager selection as the three-legged stool, where if you don't have any one of the three legs, it falls down. And those legs are people, strategy, and structure. On the people side, I really like finding people who have almost an unhealthy obsession with investing, a real passion for it and real hustle around it, but just like they were born to do this. I think there's a lot of people who do investing as a job, but I like partnering with people who really have a passion for it. And I look for people who are really able to generate investment insights to collect different or better information than others. And then sometimes they have the same information as everyone else, but they just put the pieces of the puzzle together in a different way. They understand what matters. The best investors can do both of those things, actually. And then I think people who are intellectually curious and lifelong learners who have a lot of intellectual honesty and try to learn from their mistakes. 
and then just integrity and transparency. How did you tease out those characteristics in the course of meeting with someone in your diligence process? There's definitely not a science to it. I think it's more of an art and you learn through practice the types of questions and discussions that will lead you there. We do a lot of case studies just to understand the depth of someone's research. You can tell the difference between someone who's gone really deep to understand something and someone who's skimming the surface. We talk about mistakes, what they've learned from mistakes. We ask, what is your biggest learning and what things haven't gone well? We focus on that just as much as what has gone well. And then once you've assessed that these are the types of people that fit your criteria, how do you layer on the underlying strategy? Strategy is the second leg of the stool. You really want to find someone who's maybe one rowboat fishing in a big pond as opposed to a number of boats in the pond. (laughs) And it's a small pond. So it really helps to have inefficient markets. And we can talk more about that. And then structure it's really about alignment of interests. Have they designed the structure of their team and their fund to take advantage of the opportunity that they're going after? Are they aligned with you in terms of their incentives? On the strategy side, let's talk about inefficient market, right? <laughs> it's a great phrase. We think about it. How would you define, as you look at your portfolio, where you think managers are participating in so-called inefficient markets? I think two areas where we have a lot of exposure in the portfolio are emerging markets and then smaller private equity funds, two areas that I think tend to be pretty inefficient. For better or for worse, we've had 40 to 50% of our public equity portfolio in EM over time, which as we all know, from a beta perspective, that has not been a good bet. I mean, we kind of have just gone through this lost decade But both on a 10 and a 15-year basis, our emerging market public equities have outperformed our developed market. So there's real alpha there. And we think we have been able to partner with managers who can find it. And so I think it's a really appealing asset class. And if we get the beta on top of the alpha in the future, that will be a really good thing. Small buyouts is another example. Since the GFC, large buyouts have done really well, surprisingly well. So maybe you can look back and say, that wasn't the greatest move. But Some very large number of private companies in the United States are small companies. If you look at the opportunity set relative to the amount of capital that's raised for that opportunity set, there's a real mismatch there. And there tend to be fewer sophisticated intermediaries. There's more value on the buy. I mean, the valuations do tend to be lower um, for smaller companies. There's often less debt on small buyouts. And then most importantly, there is a lot of operational opportunity in a lot of these companies. And so to me, that's just a fascinating opportunity set. And I think the trade-off has always been, if you're looking for experienced teams with long track records, those tend to be larger buyout firms. You sometimes have to make a trade-off to invest in small buyouts. So in both of those areas in emerging markets and smaller buyouts, it's a classic in theory, story that there's these inefficiencies. I'd love to peel it away a little bit and start with emerging markets. What are the types of characteristics of the managers that you found that have actually been able to create this alpha to make up for the beta headwind relative to the U.S. developed markets over the last 10 years? 
So in EM, we've had good success partnering with country-specific funds. I mean, it's been mostly India and China. It's not a global emerging market strategy. It's people who are deep and local in the markets that they're operating in, build close relationships with management teams, are really able to see trends, take advantage of volatility. And yeah, they've collectively done a great job for us. How do you balance the top-down, you could look at China and what's happened over the last year and a half with the bottom-up security selection skill in your selection of the managers in those regions? Yeah, well, we definitely have to be investing in regions that we believe in for the long term. So if you're going to be an EM, you have to get comfortable with what's going on there. We can talk about both China and India individually there. We've always been pretty big in India. I think more than a lot of our peers, we really believe in the long-term opportunity there. And We're very comfortable from a top-down perspective investing there. When you look at some of the demographic trends, just the size of the market, the TAMs for some of these companies, the fact that you have had such a build-out of infrastructure, both physical and digital in the country in recent years, there's a lot of things going in India's favor. There are challenges too, (laughs) of course. There's often government missteps and you feel like, oh, they've messed it up again. There's corruption. There's a dependence on the global economy, on energy prices, for example. And long-term, there's a real issue of climate change. Like India is very, very susceptible to global temperatures rising. And that's a big long-term issue for the country. So there's definitely challenges as well. But I think when you take the long and short of it, we're really positive on India. And if we can find local partners who we really trust to buy great companies, we're excited to do that. What's your assessment of China? Five years ago, I would have told you there are a lot of reasons why China needs to play a really meaningful part of institutional portfolios. We had a target of 20 to 25% of our equity exposure. So call it mid-teens percent of our endowment a few years back. And when you look at the backdrop of growth and the talented managers that are there and the size of the market and the innovation that was going on, I think that made a lot of sense. And of course, growth, I mean, everyone knows that GDP growth is not correlated to investment returns, but it can be a very good backdrop for stock picking and for selecting companies on the private side. What really matters, of course, is entry valuation plus return on capital, but it helps to have a GDP growth backdrop. Things have really changed in the last two years, obviously. The range of outcomes in China has widened. If you had told me in October 2022, at the moment of mass pessimism on China after the 20th Party Congress, that Kim, in early 2023, zero COVID will end abruptly the economy will open, the political situation will stabilize, and the rhetoric and the implementation of policy will turn much more pro-business, and there will not be a rally in China. (laughs) I would have told you you were crazy. This was a moment where China had lost half of its market cap in a very short period of time. There is no bid right now for China. I think people are just too scared about the geopolitical situation, and I do think there are aspects of it that are scary. There are certainly some left tail scenarios to investing in China that weren't there a few years ago. But on the other hand, you may be getting paid to take those risks right now. 
And I don't think it's a moment to rush for the exits. We don't have a choice anyway. We have a certain amount of illiquid exposure in China. So we're going to be invested there for a long period of time. But sometimes when the market is telling you you're crazy and you're starting to doubt your own sanity, (laughs) maybe that's the time to stay the course. So turn back to structure. We all throw around the words alignment of interest. How have you crystallized what matters most to you to make sure you're aligned with the managers you're investing in? So alignment of interest is really important. You want GPs putting their own money in the fund. You want them paid for performance, not for turning on the lights. I mean, these are things that we all think about. But there's another element to it, which is really understanding people's motivations. I think there are people who are truly intrinsically motivated in this business because of their passion. And those are people who keep working and working and working after they get rich. So in some respects, the alignment takes you only so far and the motivation of money takes you so far, but there has to be this just extra passion driving you forward. And that's a little harder to measure. So you were at Packard for a while before you took over for John as a CIO. What's changed in stepping into the CIO seat from being a senior person on the investment team? I think very little changed when I stepped into the CIO role after John retired. And partly that's because our whole team were so cohesive and aligned in building out this portfolio. It was really a team effort. Felt like my baby as much as anyone else's baby. And I think we really had similar investment philosophy and approach. So that helped me make the transition smooth. On the margin, there were things that I changed. I do think in the early days, we tried to have a 100% generalist model. And philosophically, I love that. I think working on different things makes you a better investor. I think being generalist is more fun. And I also think it incents competition for capital in the portfolio that you really want. So philosophically, that was great. Operationally, that was hard to do, especially as the portfolio got more complex and more mature. So today we try to have something that's a little bit more of a hybrid and maintain the philosophy of generalism with having some areas of specialization in the portfolio. But for example, there may be a smaller group that works on a particular investment going deep, but there is constant interaction with the rest of the team in terms of updates. Here's what we're learning. Here's what we're finding. What do you guys think about this? Do you know anyone we should talk to such that Everyone really does have a sense for everything in the portfolio and how it compares and the idea that it should compete. And I think that's a balance we're increasingly working on, specialization versus generalization. The other thing I would say is that we have this culture of collaboration and debate. People push back on one another very publicly. And I invite that. I love that. Sit in an investment committee meeting and disagree with me. I really want to hear what people have to say. And I hope that on our team, people feel comfortable speaking up because I think really that's how you get to the best answer. How have you structured the discussions in your meetings to allow people to speak up and feel psychologically safe? I ask people questions in front of everyone. I ask people questions who I haven't heard from. (laughs) And I very often come to the team when I've changed my mind about something and say very publicly, so-and-so made me think differently about this. I've been thinking about this over the weekend, and here's my new point of view. 
um, you have to be vulnerable and be able to change your mind as an investor. How do you structure the research process from very brand new idea to something that gets into the portfolio? So anyone can bring an idea in to take a look at. There's no hierarchy around that. Ideas can come from anywhere. If it's something that feels like it could be interesting, we immediately bring a small team to work on it. And those are people with some expertise in that area. But we also often bring in someone with no expertise just to get a different perspective. The small team is constantly interacting with the larger team along the way to give updates, to get questions answered, to get feedback. And say in terms of our process, it is very much rooted in another thing that I think Yale did very well, which is deep due diligence. I've had people tell me that it's overkill. Like we do a lot of reference calls. We do a lot of case studies. But the idea is to get to that moment where you sign the limited partnership agreement and have a really high conviction that this is something that has staying power in your portfolio. What's an example of what that research process fully baked looks like? I'm thinking of some managers we've added to the portfolio recently on the private side where we would have 10 pretty in-depth meetings with the manager, with their team, doing case studies. We have done 25, 30 references on investments recently in the past. We really value the reference calls. We learn so much from them. It's not about finding the gotcha. It's about, huh, there's an interesting comment about this investor that presents an angle that I didn't see before. And maybe it leads to some follow-up questions. And references are a really important part of our process. We do try to not do those until we're really excited about it so that we're not wasting people's time and our own. How do you tease out bias from the person giving the reference? Often I will ask a quantitative question. <laughs> I will force people to rank <laughs> the person that we're talking about on some metric because you can have a positive, lukewarm reference call. And then when you say, is this one of the top 5% of investors that you know? You can kind of get a different answer to that question. How do you ultimately go about the final decision-making process on any of the important investment decisions with your team? It's a team effort. Obviously, I have the final say. I'm responsible. I'm the CIO. But we really don't make investments where I'm the only one excited about it. And I really try to listen if the team is excited about something and I'm not and try to understand where the differences are. What happens in a situation that you describe where you were excited about something, but the rest of the team wasn't for whatever reason? Yeah, that actually happened recently. There was a fund that we did a lot of work on. I was excited at the end. And I think my two partners who are working most closely on it with me got to the end and just hadn't built the conviction in spite of all the hard work. I think my approach in that situation was, look, there's a lot of great investments out there. Let's find something we're all excited about. What happened with that investment or that manager? TBD. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're just closing their fund now. So we will see. When you've gone through that process, love to hear how the portfolio is structured to asset allocation today. Let's start from least risky to most risky. <laughs> we have about 7% of the endowment that's full faith and credit, fixed income and cash. That's our lunch money. That's our money for capital calls, for grants. We do nothing fancy at all with that part of the portfolio. Next would be our hedge fund portfolio. Hedge funds is about 25%. We are constantly debating 
what we want in there and the role and what makes sense. But overall, it's supposed to have a beta of 0.35. It's supposed to be diversifying. It's supposed to be marginally more liquid than our other assets. And it's a source of funds when things go backward. What types of strategies do you have in the hedge fund portfolio? There's three buckets. The first we call opportunistic. That's our multi-strategy hedge funds. The second is long short. And the third special situations, which is anything that's truly event-driven. So credit and other arbitrage strategies. Next risky. (laughs) Well, we can debate this, but I would throw real assets in there. (laughs) Right now, that's about 12% of the endowment. It's largely value-added real estate and liquidating portfolio of natural resource funds from the olden days. And then I would say we have 35% of the portfolio in public equity, which, as I mentioned, is very diversified internationally. And then we have our 25% in our private equity portfolio, so buyouts, growth, and venture. On the public side in the developed markets, let's say the U.S., I'm curious how you're thinking about the benchmark in a world where seven tech stocks are so much of the market. Well, we do have a global benchmark for our public equity portfolio. So there is no real U.S. benchmark. But of course, these seven stocks make up a large percentage of the global <laughs> benchmark as well. So so same question. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of zany stuff going on in the U.S. markets these days. So you have seven stocks make up 30% of the S&P. You have Apple with a market cap greater than the Russell 2000. You have the rise of the zero-day option and all this just really interesting trading-oriented, pod-shop-oriented activity in the market. And it's certainly been a very difficult time to be an active manager in the U.S. Nearly impossible. If you didn't own these big tech companies in size, it's been very hard to outperform. And actually, we did this analysis. If you look at the Cambridge Associates data on the performance of the public equity global portfolios of foundations... And you can see what median has been, what top quartile has been, et cetera. If you underperformed the global stock market by 20 basis points a year for the five years ending 2021, that was top quartile performance. So another way of saying that is the benchmark has been top quartile. In normal environments, the benchmark is actually third quartile. So it just goes to show you how difficult it's been. The question is active versus passive. I think probably we're going to look back at this moment in time and say, that was a really bad time to go passive. We can all have a debate about whether value is going to continue to accrue to these large tech platforms through AI or whatever. But in some sense, there's probably going to be a point where there's an asymptote (laughs) to that. It's going to be harder for Apple to double from here. I don't know. I'm cautiously optimistic about active management in this moment, but I think there are some real questions about it. I don't have the answer. I do know we are decreasing alpha in our models just in terms of what we expected historically. I just think it's getting harder. How are you thinking about the venture space? I'm really excited about venture in this moment because I do feel like we've gone through this 18 months of rationalization. And now venture can be venture again. (laughs) And it can be about building sustainable businesses and not about just a constant fundraising mode, whether that's the companies or the funds and this greater fool theory. This is a moment where venture can get back to the basics and the fundamentals. And I think that's going to be a really good thing. 
in buyouts, I'm still a really big fan. I think that influence and control is still one of the greatest tools you can have as an investor. And if you look at history and you cut out the most recent vintages that are not mature, but look at the 20 years of vintages before that, and you look at buyout funds versus a public market equivalent like MSCI World, the median buyout fund has outperformed the public markets by 6% a year. There's a lot of room for that spread to compress and it still belongs in your portfolio. So, you know, in the buyout world, I get excited about the opportunity to really improve and transform businesses. And I know that top down, I'm supposed to be really scared about my buyouts portfolio right now because the cost of debt has doubled and our buyout managers haven't marked their portfolios down all that much. And there's all these issues. We might be seeing a recession. When I talk to our partners one-on-one, you definitely get a different sense bottom up. I feel a little bit less scared. The leverage is not that high. The companies are very well capitalized. The cost of debt has gone up, but revenues have also gone up and the rest of the cost structure has gone up. So there's been some proportionality to this. And there's really not a lot of near-term maturities and restrictive covenants. So I have a lot of cognitive dissonance about this because I know from a top-down perspective, this does not make sense. So we'll see what happens. If we get this long-delayed recession, we could see some pain there. Have you thought about private credit? Well, first, maybe credit in general, and then we can talk about private credit. Credit seems to be getting more interesting. The thing that I would just caution, though, is that we institutional investors have spent the past decade to 14 years living in this absolute return land where inflation was so low that we really didn't have to think about real returns. I would argue that the real returns on high yield and investment grade credit right now are only just starting to get more interesting. If your high yield was eight or nine and inflation was seven, that doesn't really get you that much. And actually, if you look at the risk premium, the spreads in high yield and corporate debt, they haven't gone up that much. At the end of 2021, your high yield spread was 300, it's now 400. At the end of 2021, your corporate spread, I think, was 90, and it's now 120. So the risk premium for lending money hasn't necessarily changed all that much. So I do think credit will get interesting. We're just not there yet. Private credit could be very interesting. You have this bank retrenchment. You have, I think I read recently, $2.5 trillion of commercial real estate debt coming due in the next five years. (laughs) Who's going to refinance that? So I do think private credit could be really interesting. The challenge for us and for many foundations is how do we allocate our illiquidity budget? Because it is illiquid. And so we really want to be seeing very juicy returns to do that. You mentioned concentration and long-term relationships. And I'm curious how you balance the desire to have a focused number of great relationships with managers with the interest in keeping a portfolio fresh? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because one of the things that we really try to do at the Packard Foundation is partner with talent early in their careers. And the best thing is when you can find someone that's just really compelling and you know you have that long runway for a relationship with that person. So it's something very important to us. I think if you are going to have a concentrated portfolio, and ours is, I think we have the top 10 managers are 40%, the top 30 are 70%, I believe. 
there is a question of how do you refresh that portfolio and how do you have backup plans? Because these are some hefty core positions. The other side of it is we're a small team. I don't think we'll ever do farm team as well as some of the larger teams that really throw a lot of resources at it. But I think it is something that we've been considering more and more, not only from the perspective of how do you have a backup plan, but also we're seeing other institutions lock up capacity of managers. There's just so many different LP types chasing after talent. And so how do you make sure there's room for you in the fund over time if you're not there from day one. This is particularly true on the private side. We are strongly considering having a farm team program that's more formalized than what we've had historically, although we've always tried to do it to some extent. As you've talked to other people who have farm team programs, what are some of the rules you're considering putting in place for how many get in and how you decide when they're going to graduate? My hypothesis is that the easy thing is finding the talent that you want to put in. And the hard thing is developing a framework around when is up or out under what criteria. Maybe these are people that just don't have a long track record yet, but really show a lot of promise or you can't get the references you need to really get comfortable and make it a core position. So there's some issues, but I think it's important to have a sense going in for what you want to see over the passage of time that's going to make this turn into a core position to really believe that every farm team position could become a core. How have you incorporated different asset classes into the farm team concept? It really is applicable for us only to the public market asset classes. I don't think farm team works on the private side only because if you're really undersized in fund one and fund two, a manager becomes proven there, there isn't going to be capacity for you in fund three. So you really have to make that bet early on. In the last couple of years, there've been all of these other factors, think of ESG and DNI that have impacted the way people have thought about their portfolios. How have you thought about that and had it impact the portfolio Packard? We actually have a carve out of our endowment. That's a mission investment portfolio. That's a 3% carve out. That portfolio has a really different set of goals and objectives that align really closely with the foundation's grant making areas. It's also a different team. I think they have a different set of skills than just pure talent scouting. I mean, the results that they're wanting from those investments are very specifically tied to the grant making areas. So that's one way. On ESG, it's always been something very top of mind for us. I think it didn't have an official name for many years, and now it's becoming much more standardized. But it's always something that's been important to us, and I would say to our managers, to make sure that we are acting in accordance with the foundation's values and taking our responsibility as providers of capital seriously, looking at the effects of our actions and our decisions. So that's not new. It's becoming much more formalized now. So you go to AGMs and Managers will have a slide on their ESG initiatives, and they may have a written policy. So it's all becoming a lot more formalized and on paper. We have always had a socially responsible investment policy. It's evolved a little bit over time, not a lot, but it guides us. But the main principle is making sure when we do our reference calling on managers that we are not backing people where we have any question about their integrity and moral compass. And I often do ask managers before we partner with them, tell me about a time where you had a moral dilemma in investing and how did you handle it? And 
I don't expect everyone's moral compass to point in the same direction. But if the manager cannot think of an example of that, I think it's sometimes a red flag. Have you really never run into a situation where you wondered if what this company that you were about to invest in was doing was really right for the world? So that's just the philosophy of it. The concern that I have is the tools that help investors make these choices in this moment seem very rudimentary and very arbitrary. And so I hope those tools develop and give greater information to investors to help make these choices. But for now, I think take things case by case, because some of these scoring things that are out there that try to say, well, this company has a different ESG score from that. Like when you peel back the onion, some of these things are really hard to justify. Diversity inclusion, again, very important to us. We've done a number of things on our team to try to advance diversity in the industry. We can talk about our summer fellowship program that has a partnership with SEO, but we're trying to bring more diverse talent into the investment management industry. We also talk to our managers about it and about their philosophy about it before we invest with them. We want to be partnering with people who recognize that the industry needs to change and feel some kind of a sense of responsibility for that. I know it's sometimes easier said than done if you're a really small organization that's not hiring a lot, but I think there are things that you can do. So it's definitely a conversation that we've been having. We've also made a concerted effort to try to go to conferences that are highlighting diverse talent and just open our pipelines a bit more. And what's actually been really encouraging about some of the recent conferences we've been to, we'd actually already met a lot of those managers. So maybe something in the pipeline is is working about what we're doing. Everyone on my team also has selected an organization that is working to advance diversity and inclusion in the finance industry to volunteer with, and we all got to choose our own. So it was a process of researching these organizations. What are they doing? How can I get involved? And we've all picked different ones. So it's great to see getting involved with a lot of those organizations. How has the internship program that you created come to be and how's it evolved? So the fellowship program we have is called EMIF, Endowment Management Investment Fellowship. We started it about six years ago with our friends at UCSF and the Irvine Foundation. And it was really in response to this sense that a lot of talented undergrads that were interested in business or finance were getting channeled into these investment banking and consulting roles, really without a sense of what the other options are out there. I have the best job in the world, and I get people who call me at age... 40, 45, and they say, Kim, I want to do what you do. That just sounds so interesting. How do I do that? And in my mind, I say, gosh, it's hard when you're this experienced to make a lateral move into the endowment and foundation space. It's very much homegrown (laughs) in terms of its talent. The leadership opportunities don't open up that often because people tend to stay in the industry. So this was really a program with the idea of exposing talented undergraduates to the possibility of a career investing on behalf of a nonprofit. And so what we do is we now have 26 fellows this summer, and they're across a number of different institutions, endowments and foundations. We bring them together in the beginning of the summer for a three-day seminar where they read David Swenson's book. We do the Yale HBS case study. We have visits from a number of managers who talk about what they do. So it's endowment management 101 for three days. Then they go for eight weeks to their respective institutions. And at the end of the summer, we all come back together and they give a presentation 
on a project that they did that's of interest to all the institutions participating. We also have a partnership with SEO to try to bring more diversity into this program. And I'm really excited about where it's going. How many people are involved today? So we have 26 fellows this summer, and I think it's somewhere between 12 and 15 institutions participating. When you gather your interns together at the end of the summer and you describe why you think you have the best job in the world, (laughs) what is it that you tell? A big piece of it is the mission. To be able to go to work every day and work for a mission-driven organization, whether it's an endowment or a foundation, I think is a real privilege. And there's meaning in that. And it's motivating. And every time I get on a red eye or I'm working late, I think about that. The breadth of investments that we work on is so interesting. There is never a dull moment. It's constantly changing. The things that I thought about 10, 15 years ago are not the things that matter today. Today, I'm thinking about the energy transition and AI and cryptocurrency, any number of things. 10, 15 years ago, there was a different set of topics. So it's this constant learning as an institutional investor because the world is your oyster. What do I do every day, Ted? I build relationships and have conversations with the most talented investors all over the world. Yes, please. Sign me up. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kim, I want to ask you a couple of closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I love doing anything that has nothing to do with my brain. So (laughs) I have to turn the brain off. I have to turn the body on. So that would be working out, hiking, cooking, anything with the senses. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? One is just dishonesty, not saying what you mean and meaning what you say. The other is lack of accountability and personal responsibility. There are people in the world who, when something goes wrong, it's always someone else's fault. And I just find that tough. What investment mistake have you made that you'd never make again? I'm thinking of two. From a pure numbers perspective, not figuring out a way to get invested with Sequoia when we started up our team in 2008, I think was probably pretty costly. We also, back to Short Only Fund in 2015, wonderful people, wonderful research, but it was a really, really tough time and they ended up going out of business and we lost a lot of money feeding the beast over those years. I might have a screw loose, but I actually think that short sellers provide value to society. (laughs) So they keep management teams honest, they expose fraud, they keep the market in check. There's an opportunity for people to lend securities if they want to do that. So I actually think that short sellers bring a lot of value to the financial markets. And I really hope they don't go the way of the dinosaurs, even though we had this one experience that didn't work out. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? Well, we talked about David, not only because he got me into this industry and took a chance on me, for which I'm very grateful. It's not even what I learned about investing from him, but how important mission was to him. And that's just something I've kept with me. The other is a woman named Elizabeth Appling, who is the founding artistic director of the San Francisco Girls Chorus, which is an organization I spent a lot of time with growing up. I could go on and on about Elizabeth and all the impact that she's had. But suffice it to say, she demanded excellence from young girls and she taught me what it was to give my all to something. And she had this way of making you believe that you 
had a gift that you owed to the world and not getting up there on stage and performing was actually selfish. And it was just an interesting time in my life because you think about pubescent girls, they want to hide from the world. They don't think they have anything to give. And this woman just pulled it out of us. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? Definitely the value of education. We were middle class. We didn't go on fancy vacations. We didn't eat out at restaurants, but I had the best schools. And my mother saved and saved for college. And I had a great education as a result. And it's something that has really changed my life and something that I hope for my girls as well. All right, Kim, last one. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Time is fleeting. My daughters are 13 and 11 now. I feel them slipping from my (laughs) grasp. (laughs) And when they were young, my career was on a very steep trajectory and I was traveling all the time. And I wish I could go back and just carpe diem with those years. Kim, thanks so much for sharing your insights. Thank you, Ted. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 